Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, it's Brian Lehrer, a daily politics podcast. It's Thursday, August 18th. Well, this has been another week of high drama in the unprecedented times we're living in since January 6th of last year. You know about last week's FBI search of Mar-a-Lago, authorized by a federal court search warrant, and the tension around classified documents that former President Trump apparently is refusing to give back to the government. You know about the warrant being made public, which both Trump and Attorney General Merrick Garland agreed would be a good thing. Maybe you know that Republicans and several news organizations are asking for the affidavit requesting the search warrant to be made public to know more about exactly what the Justice Department is investigating. But DOJ is arguing against the release of that. They say it would blow their whole investigation. Maybe you know that in a separate investigation, Rudy Giuliani appeared for six hours yesterday before a grand jury in Georgia after being named as a subject of a criminal investigation there for possible illegal efforts to influence how the presidential vote there was certified. You probably know about the FBI and Department of Homeland Security warning that there's been an increase in threats of violence against federal law enforcement officials since the Mar-a-Lago search and the context of more radicals on the right wanting a new civil war. And with that in mind, Maybe you know that after Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney of Wyoming, vice chair of the January 6th committee in the House, of course, lost her reelection primary on Tuesday, she gave a concession speech for the ages that invoked names like President Lincoln and General Grant. And all who fought in our nation's tragic civil war, including my own great-great-grandfathers, saved our union. Their courage saved freedom. And if we listen closely, they are speaking to us down the generations. We must not idly squander what so many have fought and died for. Congresswoman Liz Cheney on Tuesday night, giving many Americans of all parties chills. Let's see where we are. With us now, USA Today Washington Bureau Chief Susan Page. She is also author of the books Madam Speaker, Nancy Pelosi and the Lessons of Power, and The Matriarch, Barbara Bush and the Making of an American Dynasty. And she's got a new one on the way on TV journalist Barbara Walters. Susan, always great to hear your insights. Welcome back to WNYC. Hey, Brian, it's great to be with you. And let's start on Liz Cheney. Did she give the concession speech you expected to hear? She did. I mean, no surprise that she lost. You know, the surprise about her loss was the margin. She lost by 37 percentage points. That is pretty much a message from Republican voters in Wyoming. But we knew that was going to happen. We knew that from the moment she voted for President Trump's impeachment and then agreed to serve on the January 6th panel, that she was likely to have a very hard time in her home state, the state that gave President Trump his biggest margin uh, in the last election. Um, and we, we knew that she doesn't plan to bow out of politics, although exactly what she plans to do isn't clear. She took very much a big picture perspective, the kind of thing that you do when you start quoting Abraham Lincoln. Well, we'll talk about her potential run for president in 2024, which she invoked. People have probably heard about that. But before we get that far, does her loss 
by that margin in this primary say something about the National Republican rank and file's response to the January 6th committee presentations and everything related? Or is it just more specific to Wyoming, which percentage-wise I think is the most Republican state? The margin is perhaps Wyoming specific, but the message is nationwide. We had 10 House Republicans vote to impeach President Trump. Eight of them are now out of the picture, either through retirement or through defeat in primaries. Only two of them even have a prospect of returning to Congress uh, next year. This is a nationwide phenomenon. Uh, It shows the hold that President Trump continues to have on this Republican Party. So Cheney told NBC's The Today Show yesterday morning that she's considering running for president in 2024. Would she run as a Republican under the circumstances you just described or as an independent? So excellent question. Not one that she answered. Uh, I would say that she says her primary goal is to make sure that uh, Donald Trump does not become president again. And most analysts believe that if she ran as an independent, she would make it easier for Trump to win the White House again. Uh, so it seems that that path is one that's got some, would have some concerns for her. If she runs for the Republican nomination, there is no chance at this moment, at least, that she would win it. Uh, she might, It would put her in a position to continue to make her arguments about uh, why Trump is the wrong choice for the Republican Party and the nation. Uh, but we'll, I think we'll have to, I think we'll have to wait and see. She has a lot of money. She has a lot of prominence. She continues to have the platform of the January 6th committee. Uh, So I think she has any number of options for what she wants to do next. So if we accept that analysis, that if she runs as a Republican in Republican primary, she's got no shot. And if she runs as an independent, she would siphon votes more from Democrats in the November election in 2024 and therefore make it more likely for Donald Trump if he's the nominee to win, uh, then she would just be doing it if she does do it, if she runs presumably as a Republican in those in those primaries, she would be doing it just to have the platform to amplify the message about Donald Trump's threat to the republic? You know, there are many errors I've made in covering politics over the years, and I try not to make them more than once or twice. (laughs) And one of the mistakes I made early on was in assuming that symbolic candidacies didn't matter. And I think we've seen that quests, political quests that seem like you're just trying to make a point, uh, they can have a real impact. And I'm thinking like in particular about Bernie Sanders, uh, who I think was originally seen as, you know, kind of a guy with crazy hair from a little state uh, with socialists who called himself a democratic socialist. He ended up having over the years, huge impact yes. on the Democratic Party. Uh, that you know, I would that I didn't see at the beginning as a possibility. So you you know you don't know what happens next. You don't know what happens. We, our politics have been so turbulent that I think it is a mistake to assume that we've got a straight line ahead. You know, once upon a time, John F. Kennedy, before he was president, I know you know this as a Washington journalist for a long time and as an author yourself. But John F. Kennedy, before he was president, wrote a book called Profiles in Courage about members of Congress who went against the usual positions of their party to do courageous things. Liz Cheney probably goes right to the Profiles in Courage Mount Rushmore for her January 6th committee role. And that's recognizing that at the same time, if she was ever a nominee for president, 
Democrats who feel very moved by what she's been doing recently would have to confront the reality that she is, you know, conservative pretty much down the line on all the issues except this, abortion rights and everything else. But nevertheless, profile and courage. Hey, absolutely. You know, she voted with President Trump 93 percent of the time in Congress. So she is not a closet Democrat. She is a conservative Republican in the traditional mold, in the mold of her father, Dick Cheney. Um, but she, on this issue, she has stood up for what she sees as principles at some political cost, at some great political cost. Before Donald Trump uh, came on the scene, Liz Cheney was seen as a potential future Speaker of the House. Uh, that is a path that at the moment does not seem open to her. And Susan, let's move on to Rudy Giuliani, his six-hour appearance yesterday. But I don't know if we can call it six hours of testimony before Georgia grand jury. Did Giuliani just take the fifth for six hours like Trump did in his New York State attorney general questioning last week in another case? So I've seen no um, news reports that answer that question. But before he went in there, uh, Rudy Giuliani said that he could claim attorney-client privilege uh, he's also, of course, free to invoke his Fifth Amendment rights against self-incrimination, which some of the other uh, people who have been subpoenaed before their grand jury have done. So you, you, we might think that it's likely that what he mostly said was, I take the Fifth or I'm invoking attorney-client privilege rather than responding to the questions. But I don't think we know that for a fact quite yet. What's Giuliani's status exactly in the Georgia investigation? How specifically... Do we know what he's being investigated for and what it means that he's named as a suspect or reportedly named as a suspect? Where does that actually stand? Well, he's a target. He's been informed that he's a target of this inquiry. That means that he could be indicted, although he wouldn't necessarily be indicted. But it means that they are considering at least the possibility of indicting him. He's being uh, investigated for um, his statements arguing that there were, was evidence of real significant election fraud in Georgia in the 2020 election, that there were suitcases under a tabulation table that were stuffed full of ballots and that there was underage people voting and that there were dead people voting and that the voting machines were, were rigged. And these are things that investigations have concluded are not true. Uh, so he is that is, I think, the, uh, the 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 threats of the investigation that has made him a target. When will we know if he's indicted or not? When the grand jury acts uh, and we don't know when that will be. Well, if Giuliani is charged for that kind of election interference or lying specifically, would Trump also need to be charged for his phone call to the Georgia secretary of state asking him to find enough votes to flip the result, we all know about that phone call to Brad Raffensperger, the Georgia Secretary of State elected Republican. We've heard that tape. Um, but is that the same thing or is that a different thing than they're looking at with Giuliani? So, uh, you know, I, I barely have a journalism degree. I do not have a law degree. So you should probably <laughs> ask a lawyer or a prosecutor that question. But we know that Trump looms large over this Georgia uh, investigation. Um, and, uh, so I, 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 you know, I hate to say wait and see, uh, but I don't know what else we can quite do in this yeah. case. Are there any, to your knowledge, as a non-lawyer, um, mm -hmm. civil suits against Giuliani? You know, you mentioned the, the lies that he was telling, presumably knowing they were untrue, um, or it 
may or may not even matter if he fully knew they were untrue during that. People will remember the testimony before the January 6th committee of the African-American mother and daughter who were poll workers in Georgia just doing their job, passing ginger mints that Rudy Giuliani said were some kind of drugs and accusing them of messing with ballots, which they absolutely did not do. Um, Could they sue him? Are they suing him for defamation or whatever that civil case would be or anybody else who, who he may have named? Well, we know that Dominion Voting Systems has sued Rudy Giuliani for defamation. Uh, and that case is also proceeding. Other p- figures in Trump world have also been cited in that investigation. And we also know that Rudy Giuliani has lost his law license uh, in New York as a result of these activities. Patrick in Brooklyn, you're on WNYC. Hi, Patrick. Hey, thank you so much, uh, Brian. Um, uh, out of Brooklyn, first time caller. Uh, the guests just say that uh, she's not a closet Democrat, that she's actually 100% conservative, but Liz, talking I want to understand Liz, talking how, about Liz Cheney. Uh-huh. Yeah. How, how was Trump able, because I saw a, a clip where Trump was campaigning for the lady that just won. How was, how was he able to paint her as a rhino? Because he was saying in that speech that she is a Democrat in name, whether a, uh, a Republican in name only, she, she is a rhino. You know, but her record doesn't show that. So how are they able to uh, to paint her as a rhino? Because I believe that is one of the reasons why she was able to be defeated, like with uh, big margins. Patrick, that's that's the question of the year for the Republican Party in America. And Susan, I, I think the answer would be something like being a Republican in name only means you could be for every conservative position under the sun but you don't defend Donald Trump. Yes. So, you know, Patrick has really put his finger on an important point here. It, it, Republican in name only uh, does no, long, no longer means uh, a Republican defined as someone who extols conservative principles like uh, fiscal responsibility and a strong military uh, and a small government. Those are the things that used to be the pillars of the definition of Republican. But the definition of Republican now is Trump supporter. It's less policy. It's more personality. It is uh, a loyalty to this individual. It's a kind of populism that is not a traditional conservatism. So someone who was a rhino 10 years ago but might not be a rhino now. Somebody who was a uh, uh, somebody who was uh, the member of the last the republic of the Republican ticket that got elected and reelected president in the 2000s, that would be Dick Cheney. Uh, he would now be seen, I think, by the Trump Republican Party as a Republican in name only. Somebody wrote in some publication, I wish I could remember who so I could credit them, that the family that was not that long ago the biggest threat to democracy and our republic is now the biggest defender of democracy in our republic. So uh, I know I botched that quote, but there was something like that, drawing that line of what Democrats at least used to think about Dick Cheney to Liz Cheney's so surprising to so many people role, considering her family history uh, that she has stepped up to. You know, Brian, one other thing that has struck me, uh, that struck me Tuesday night as I was watching the election returns is Donald Trump's remarkable success in toppling 
political dynasties. In 2016, he toppled the Bush dynasty, he defeated and humiliated Jeb Bush in winning the Republican nomination. In that election, general election, he toppled the Clinton dynasty, the most, you know, at the time, the most powerful name, uh, family name in democratic policies, in democratic politics. Now he's toppled the Cheney dynasty, uh, also one of the big names in Republican politics. So he has been enormously successful in disrupting the people who families we think of uh, as as leading uh, American political families. The threats to law enforcement, Susan, since the Mar-a-Lago search that aren't just, you know, liberal media, blah, blah, blah. This is an official warning from the FBI and Department of Homeland Security. How organized and serious versus how much just random, radical, individualized spouting off on social media? Well, we know that law enforcement officials are increasingly concerned about real threats to law enforcement officials. And, and they, do, you know, they do not have to be organized with large groups. They can be individuals who are radicalized by our political climate. That's what we saw in Cincinnati uh, with the guy who attacked the FBI office there and was then killed. Uh, we've seen an indictment in Pennsylvania of a man who was threatening to assassinate FBI agents. We've seen the the uh, the the terrible reaction to the two FBI agents whose names were revealed by the leaking of that search warrant uh, at Mar-a-Lago. They've encountered a lot of, I think, harassment. We hope it doesn't go beyond harassment uh, since their names were released. So I think this is something that is of great concern. The threat of political violence here is very real. Is this like the climate before the 1995 Oklahoma City federal building bombing by right-wing radical Timothy McVeigh that killed hundreds of people? Was there this kind of chatter leading up to that? I mean, I'm thinking about the 1990s, Bill Clinton was elected. There was this sort of, you know, anti-Clinton dementia on the right, uh, you know, that went so far beyond whatever his policy positions were. The black helicopters are going to come and take your rights away, all the stuff that was going on. Newt Gingrich led the Republican revolt that won the majority in Congress in 94 after Clinton became president in 93. And then, boom, the next year, 95, there's the Oklahoma City uh, bombing in the context of a lot of militia movement uh, activity and and some kind of Republican rhetoric. How, how much of a parallel do you think this is? Well, there's there's been a long thread in American political life of radicalism and of threats of violence and of uh, anti-government uh, sentiment. Uh, and of course, the tragedy in Oklahoma City, we've never forgotten that. But this seems so much worse to me. It seems so much broader. We now have a situation where a majority of Republican voters say they did, do not believe that Joe Biden was legitimately elected, even though we know he was. Uh, we, we know that uh, uh, we know that the percentage of Americans who say they could envision the need to take uh, uh, violent action against their government has been rising uh, in in national polling. So I th I think uh, I think this is I just think this is such a perilous time for us. And you know I've covered 1980 was the first presidential campaign I covered. I I've just in that time just never seen anything like the temper that we have in our politics today. Yeah. By the way, heads up, Kylie in Virginia, 
listener tweets, just checked. If your previous caller is voting in Virginia, they have open primaries, so she doesn't have to re-register as a Republican to vote for a Republican in a primary. So, You know, Brian, that's such a smart uh, email because, of course, it's only because of open primaries that the two House Republicans who voted for impeachment managed to survive in California Mm -hmm. and in Washington State, both states that have open primaries. If they had had the traditional party primaries in those two states, those two people would not, those two members of Congress would not have survived to the general election. Really something to think about as Americans across the country try to figure out what we can do. There's not going to be one thing that fixes our politics. What can we do that makes our politics a little better? And I think the record of open primaries has been pretty striking. The affidavit that, for people who don't know, is the piece of paper, or it's probably like 80 pages, uh, arguing from the FBI and the Justice Department generally to a court to approve a search warrant, like the search warrant for Mar-a-Lago. That in particular, of course, uh, the search warrant was released. Now, some news organizations, as well as some Republicans, are asking for the affidavit to be released So there's transparency about what case the government thinks it might actually have against Donald Trump or anybody else at Mar-a-Lago. Susan, is USA Today one of those news organizations petitioning for this release? I was worried you were going to ask me that because I'm just I'm just not sure we've been party to some of the legal actions in some states on release of documents. I'm just not informed about that one. Sadly, our legal department does not confer with me before they undertake these these efforts. <laughs> That's a good thing. <laughs> keep, keep that firewall between the, the news reporters and editors and the, uh, the legal department. Um, but how about the arguments on each side? Yeah, we're going to have a hearing at one o'clock. Uh, we're all going to be watching it closely. We, thought, we think it'll go for a couple hours. We know the government, the Department of Justice, is going to argue uh, against release of the affidavit. Um, and... The lawyers that I've seen talking about this say that the Justice Department is likely to prevail, that it would be very unusual to release this affidavit. It details for the judge who approved the search warrant exactly why the Department of Justice thought a crime was being committed and they needed to and why they needed to conduct this very aggressive search. Uh, so they they have argued that it would reveal too much about their case. It could have a chilling effect on others. Uh, but we'll see. You know, it was somewhat unusual that we got the search warrant itself, the search warrant and the list of documents and other material that that the FBI uh, seized from Mar-a-Lago. Uh, that was in part because President Trump had made an issue of it, and since he was the person who was whose whose property was being searched, uh, that held some sway uh, with the Department of Justice agreeing to go along with that release. Uh, but I think it is seen as unlikely that we're going to see this affidavit as a result of this court action today. But again, we'll we'll see. Uh, It's up to the judge. Here's a listener posting on Twitter saying he's a lawyer. It says, I believe most lawyers would say you don't allow the affidavit to be released until there are indictments and or no true bill, meaning no indictment. Otherwise, you jeopardize what is still an investigation versus a prosecution. Trump would like nothing more. And, and it is this unusual uh, coalition between Donald Trump and major mainstream news organizations. Uh, here's a little bit of that. I just looked this up on the CBS News site. So this says attorneys for many of the nation's largest media companies will try to persuade a federal magistrate judge today 
to make public the affidavit supporting the warrant that allowed FBI agents to search former President Donald Trump's Florida estate last week. The Associated Press, The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, CBS, and the other broadcast TV networks, CNN, and others want Magistrate Judge Bruce Reinhardt to release the affidavit. So USA Today wasn't named there, but all those major mainstream news organizations were. And then it goes on today to say Trump, in a post last week, called for the release of the unredacted affidavit in the interest of transparency. So we have the major news organizations and Donald Trump on the same side in court this afternoon. Yeah, go figure. Fake news and Donald Trump. And yet probably, as the lawyer who wrote in said, probably not enough, we, we think, to persuade a judge to go ahead. And the CBS um, story on itself really says the companies argue the affidavit's release would help the public determine if the Justice Department had legitimate reasons for the search or if it was part of a Biden administration vendetta against Trump as the former president and his backers contend. So we will see what happens there this afternoon. And so much more on all these threads, which obviously we will continue to follow, as will our guest, Susan Page, Washington Bureau Chief of USA Today and author of books, including Madam Speaker Nancy Pelosi and the Lessons of Power and the Matriarch, Barbara Bush and the Making of an American Dynasty. Susan, we always appreciate it. Thank you so much. Brian, it's always a pleasure. Thank you. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.